Well, it is a delight to be here with you tonight. Thankful for the opportunity and thankful for your presence. As I mentioned, the, the title of the sermon is Maintaining Our Faith Through Loss. It's interesting. Revelation 2.10, we quote at least a portion of that with great frequency, and we exhort through, the, through John to exhort one another to be faithful unto death. And, and we take the passage to mean just what it says. Uh, if we are facing the issue of death, and John was exhorting his audience and by us, by extension, to, to be faithful and even up to and through that. It's, it's a slight twist on the verse, though, because what we're talking about tonight is not your own, but someone else's that you love. Well, you need to be faithful through that, too. We need to maintain our faith through loss. Loss and death may uh, be one of our greatest pains. Uh, death might very well be the greatest challenge that we face with regards to our faith. And before we even really get into the material, I, I want to be very clear that grief and mourning are normal. It's natural, it's healthy, and we should not try to ignore it or dismiss it. We shouldn't try to downplay it, or we shouldn't try to get over it quickly to make others comfortable. First Thessalonians chapter 4 should not be used as a weapon on those who are suffering. These verses are intended to give hope and comfort, not to belittle pain, loss, and grief. Uh, I don't personally even think that we should react to loss as a, quote, home-going celebration. First of all, I don't read that in Scripture. Now, it's true. I could have missed it. But then secondly, there are two words in Scripture that teach me very plainly that grief and sorrow are the, the proper response to loss, not celebration. Uh, those two words are recorded in John eleven thirty five. 35. The Bible simply states, Jesus wept. At the loss of a friend, he wept. He didn't celebrate. So then I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't feel grief or we shouldn't mourn or weep. In fact, I'm saying just the opposite. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't remember or pray or even wish we didn't have to experience it or that we didn't have to try to process the loss of a loved one. No, I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm talking about is maintaining our faith in loss. Let me offer some things to consider as we begin to work through the material. Those things are this. Number one, scripture is interconnected. Here's what I mean by that. Any Bible doctrine can be studied in isolation. You can study faith, grace, salvation, miracles, heaven, and you could study each one without any regard for every other Bible doctrine. You can study every one in isolation. Here is the point. No doctrine actually is isolated. While you can study faith alone, you should know faith is connected to grace. And grace is connected to salvation. And miracles are connected to the mystery. And life is connected to death and so on and so on. We are talking about maintaining our faith. Well, to do so, we must talk about other things. We have to talk about the will of God. We will. We need to talk about prayer. We will. We need to talk about revelation. We will. We need to talk about God. And that's just to name a few things. So when we are contemplating loss, where do we begin to go wrong? Let me suggest this, that we often begin to go wrong when we begin to process and deal with loss because we start with the loss. If we're going through sickness, might be terminal, or someone we love, 
And we began in that dynamic, in that space to look for answers. And often we began to ask questions, sometimes, unfortunately, the wrong questions. May I suggest that if we want to understand life on earth, we must start with revelation from heaven. Don't start with your life or any other person's life. When we open the Bible, we begin with the beginning. And while it's not exactly spelled out, unfortunately, we might read beginning and unconsciously miss a very important point. Genesis 1-1 reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is a statement about the beginning of time, of space, of matter. It's the beginning of plants and insects and planets and fish and birds and land animals and humans and marriage. But it's not the beginning of God. Oh, Genesis 1 records our beginning, not God's beginning. So if we want to understand life on earth, we must seek to understand the God who made life on earth. Now then, to understand God, secondly, we need revelation. When loss occurs, we look for answers, and in our grief, we might say the wrong things about God. We might say things that are not accurate about God. Now remember, we're we're talking about loss, and, and remember, doctrines are interconnected. So when pain and, and potential loss or real loss, actual loss occurs, what do we do? Well, we pray. And that is so normal and natural for a child of God to do that what else would we do? We pray to God about the very thing. Now, unfortunately, I have heard people say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and my loved ones still passed. And therefore I no longer believe in God. They may not have known the very things we're talking about tonight. You have your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter five. Notice with me verse 13 and verse number 15. The Bible says, John writes, these things I have written to you who believe that you might know that you have eternal life. He says in verse number 14, and this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we have our petitions of him. So we are praying, and then we read these passages. And now we realize that to petition God effectively and accurately, I need to know his will. Well, I have to now, I have to reroute, reconfigure, and re-understand my prayers because now my prayer needs to be interconnected with his will. Question, how can I know his will? How can I pray according to his will? I can't guess about that. It's not a hunch. It's not something I can feel. This is why we start with heaven because I need revelation to know his will. And friends, listen, I could be wrong, and I probably will say that a few times tonight. I think I already have once or twice. I could be wrong, but I don't think John means his will in every instant in Eric's life, in every choice I'm going to make, in every situation of my life. I don't think that's what John means. First of all, God hasn't revealed his will to me in every situation, every specific situation in my life. He hasn't revealed his will to me. Secondly, Without revelation, how could I know it? 
How could I know what his will is in every circumstance and every choice I'm to make in my life and every event that occurs in my life if I have no revelation? Thirdly, even those with revelation in scripture didn't have God's will on every particular situation. I don't know of any person in the New Testament who, who probably had more visions and revelations than the Apostle Paul. And there was an occurrence in Paul's life, a situation, a dynamic, something happened. The particular thing that happened was a, a, a man named Onesimus ran away from his master, Philemon. And when he ran away, he met of all people, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul met him and Paul does what Paul, Paul did what Paul does, he taught him the gospel. And as Paul was writing a letter through inspiration, interestingly, he's penning Philemon through inspiration and he reaches a point in that inspired epistle that concerns revelation. And in verse number 15, the apostle Paul says, for this is perhaps why he parted for you for a while or a season that you might receive him back as a brother forever. So Paul says, he left you, perhaps. Paul does not say, you know, it was the will of God that he ran away from you and that he met me. And now, having fulfilled God's will, I'm sending him back to you. That's not what Paul said. The reason Paul didn't say it was the will of God is because Paul didn't know the will of God on that specific instant. The reason he didn't know it is God had revealed it. So the best that the Apostle Paul could say, the individual who had revelations and visions in a great many other areas, the author of 13 of the New Testament book, that individual says in this particular instance, perhaps, since we can't know God's mind unless he reveals it, then God must have revealed his mind in his word. God's will must be in his word so that we can know it, so that we can pray according to it. If you have your Bibles, you've heard us talk about this verses or this section of verses on, on, on digital before, and I, I'm sure Jonathan and I both feel uh, the same about these passages and their significance. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. With regards to the will of God, Paul says that God has revealed his mind, and we can therefore know what the mind of God is. If you are reading 1 Corinthians, you should start at about verse number 18 of chapter 1 to get this full context, and then read at the very least all the way through chapter 2. Some would say even read as far as over as chapter 4, but certainly it includes chapter 2, from 118 to the end of chapter 2. The discussion in that section of scripture is wisdom human wisdom and divine wisdom. They are compared and contrasted and Paul is ultimately expressing that it is the divine wisdom of God that has chose the method of preaching the gospel. And he will make the case that for the Greeks, it's foolishness. To them, the Christ on the cross is foolishness. On the other hand, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Same message reacted to and responded to in two different ways by two different groups of people. But Paul says of those two groups, Jews and Greeks, there is within them, individuals from both groups who do believe and do and have responded to the gospel call. And to those individuals, he is Christ, the power of God unto salvation, both of Jews and Greeks. 
And Paul continues talking that way all the way through the end of chapter one. And you, you get down to verse number 29 in chapter one, and he explains that God chose this particular method not simply to confound the wise, and although he says that and to bring to naught the things that are, he, he does say those things, he did that. But ultimately in verse 29, he says, so that no flesh will glory in his presence. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God's revelation, when it comes to what God was doing in the world, Paul is going to say that this was a mystery and that this mystery, Paul is going to say, was not known by anyone. In fact, he says, no eye ever saw it, no ear ever heard it, no mind or heart ever imagined what God has prepared for them that love him. But he says this, God has revealed it unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I'm down in about verse nine now. He says, for what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God, what's Paul's point? It's simply this. You cannot know the mind of God unless God reveals it. Well, we understand that revelation has ceased and therefore the mind of God revealed, the will of God revealed is in the scriptures. He talks about it again in Ephesians chapter three. There in that entire chapter, he makes the case that this is the eternal purpose of God. And again, he says that, that, he says that God made it known by him by revelation. He made known unto me the mystery. He says in chapter three of Ephesians and verse three, which I wrote a four and few words, that's back in chapter one and verse number nine. And then he says in verse four, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. What's the mystery? Verse six, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of the promise through the gospel. What's the mystery? Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, all these, the, all of humanity reconciled, brought together in one body, which he's been discussing throughout the whole book. He says, in fact, that this mystery is the eternal purpose of God. Friends, I want to suggest to you that in my estimation, and again, I could be wrong, but I think the mystery is the will of God. I, I think that's what the Bible is encompassing. That's what God has revealed. He has revealed that which no one knew, the mystery. It encompasses the whole Bible. Let's talk then about the will of God. The will of God, at least in my estimation, as you contemplate those things, can be subdivided into three sections. And this is simply for simplistic sake, simplicity's sake, and for alliteration, I've chosen to call it salvation. You might call it the scheme of redemption, the plan of salvation. But what we're talking about is the same thing. We're talking about the seed promised in Genesis 3. We're talking about the promises to Abraham that ultimately culminates in the Christ coming and dying for the sins of the world. That is the scheme of redemption. That's the will of God. God willed that. That's what he has revealed. In fact, when Jesus was on earth, he talked about it in the same way. John 4, 31 to 34 comes to mind where the apostles had gone to get food, you'll recall, after his conversation with the woman at the well. And when they came back, they offered him meat. And Jesus said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. They were concerned. Well, who got them food while we were away? Who did that? Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says it again in John 5, 17 and 18, my father has been working hitherto and I work. The Jews sought to kill him for that. You'll also recall in the garden, it was Jesus who prayed, let this cup pass from me. What cup? Cup of the cross. What are you going to do? I'm going to die. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but your will be done. It was the Father's will for Jesus to die on the cross. The second subdivision then is sanctification. We might also say then holy living or growing in grace. A passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 comes to mind. Now, I do understand that the word sanctification can be used, is used in another way. <clears throat> and that is that when a person obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are in that one instance, in that one moment, having been baptized for the remission of their sins, they are then sanctified. Put, a, put an ED on that. That's a one-time act, and they are that. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 comes to mind. Those were called saints. They had been sanctified. However, that individual are the, are the people who receive these epistles. And what these epistles are emphasizing is the need for sanctification, the need to grow in grace and in knowledge, 2 Peter 3.18, the need to mature and become to a full man, the need for holy living, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, or 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 26, the need to become a vessel of honor, meet for the master's use. Listen to Paul in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, three times in verse well, 1 to 7, you'll see the word sanctification. And he is talking about how they are to walk, verse number 1. And he says, we've given you this authority, and this is the will of God, verse number 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Down in verse number seven, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So what's the will of God? Sanctification. You have Jesus coming to die on the cross, yes, and then you have those who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, living holy lives, being sanctified, growing in grace and knowledge, and so forth. Anything then, at least in my estimation, again, I could be wrong, but anything involving the sanctification of a child of God can be prayed for within the will of God. Brings us to the third point, seeking the lost, evangelism. That is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24. With regards to God's will, it's recorded in 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 4 that God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In reverse, it said in 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Anything, therefore, involving the seeking and saving of the lost souls can be prayed for within the will of God. That's what Jesus, that's what John wrote. Then we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The will of God then can also be described as, first, God's decrees. Here's something that God will cause to happen. Of those three things, the only one that fits into this category is the coming of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verses 24 to 20, uh, 22 to 24, Peter and the other apostles says that Jesus coming to die on the cross was done by the foreknowledge and the determinate counsel of God. God determined that this would happen. Jesus' death on the cross therefore could not fail because heaven has determined it. In fact, according to Ephesians 3, it was purposed in eternity. Heaven has foreknown it. Heaven cannot fail. Purpose in eternity and Jesus will die on the cross. And he did. That's the decree of God. The second two are God's desires. These are things that God wants to happen, but he will not cause to happen. God desires his children to grow, but he won't make us grow. No, he has given us his word and the tools, 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Not that you are a babe, but imitate a babe as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That you may grow thereby. God desires all men to be saved, but he won't force anybody. He will that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but not everybody will be saved. 
He's not willing that any should perish. That's not what he wants, but he won't cause that to happen by force. The will of God can also be seen in the work of the Godhead. The Father purposed, Genesis to Malachi, the Word performed, Matthew through John, and the Spirit perfected, Acts to Revelation. Now, someone might ask, are we talking about prayer, the will of God, or our faith? Yes, because Scripture is interconnected. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if you go back to that passage again, let's dissect it a little. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. Break these verses down. If we ask anything, prayer. If we're asking of God, we're praying. According to his will, the will of God. He hears us. And if he knows that he hears us, we know, faith, that we have our petition. And we talked about prayer. We talked about the will of God. Here's what we haven't done. We haven't spent time talking about him. We are trying to maintain our faith in law. In whom? The focus is on him then. We have confidence toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know if he hears us, we know that we have our request that we have asked of him. What we're talking about then is maintaining our faith in him through loss. So let me offer a few thoughts about God. Thought number one, God is independent of his creation. We should understand that about him. Psalm 90, verse 1 and verse number 2, the Bible says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth over or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Before day one, in the beginning, there was God. God's character then, secondly, is not known or determined by our circumstances. That's why we can't begin with us. That's why we can't start to try to understand it inside of the lost. We've got to start in heaven. The Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, Exodus 34, verse 6 and verse number 7. And one of the reasons I enjoy these verses so much is because God is talking about himself. Moses says, show me your glory. God said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by before you and I'll proclaim my name. This is Jehovah telling us who he is. Who are you, Lord? He is the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, to the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. That's who God is. That's who our faith is in. Another thing about God, his nature is infinite. Psalm 139 addresses three characteristics of God's nature. He is omniscient, verses 1 through 6. David talks about his knowledge. It's too wonderful for me. It's high. He is omnipresent, verses 7 through 12. I can't flee from you. If I ascend up to hell and to hell and make my grave there, you're there. If I take, take, take the light and, and, it, and, and say it's going, the darkness is going to hide me, even there you see me. There's no way from why you're omniscient. He is omnipotent, verses 13 to 18. The infinite nature of God. He is eternal, Psalm 91 and 2. He is holy, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. 
What are we talking about then? Yes, we talked about prayer. Yes, we talked about his will, but we're talking about faith in him. It's maintaining our faith in loss. Faith is in him. Faith comes from revelation, Romans 10 and 17. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith is rooted in him, Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them to diligently seek him. We have to trust his infinite nature. We have to trust his perfect character. We learn both from revelation. Nothing about loss calls into question the God in whom we place our faith. Let us make sure we don't misplace our faith. Our faith is not in our works, though faith obeys. Our faith is not in our health. Our faith is not in our attendance. Our faith is not in our preachers. Our faith is not in our buildings. Our faith is not in our strength. Our faith is not in our prayers though we need to ask in faith. And listen to this, this, this part very carefully, because I don't want you to misunderstand me. Our faith is not even in the Bible, though we can have faith in the Bible, and though scripture produces faith. Contextually, for our discussion tonight, our faith is not in the Bible because our faith is in the one who revealed the Bible. And it's him that gives us the Bible and reason to believe in it. No, our faith is not even in that, it's in him. Our faith must be and can only be in him. Where did you place your faith, friend? It's in his infinite nature. It's in his perfect character. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind or repent. Has he said and shall he not do it? Has he spoken and shall it not come to pass? Numbers 23, 19. We live in hope of eternal life, Paul says. It's God that cannot lie, promised before the world began. What has God revealed to us? Number one, God has revealed that we have free will and he won't override it. You read Acts chapter five, verses one through five. I do understand when people say that, that the money is ours and that God has given it to us and we're giving him back a portion. I, I process that correctly. I do understand what they're saying. After all, we could read Psalm 50 and all the world belongs to God and the cattle on a thousand hill. But friends, listen, there's a very real part where it belongs to you. Acts chapter five, Peter makes it abundantly clear that was not God's money. That was Ananias's and Sapphira's money. In fact, he says it twice. While they remained, was it not your own? Yes, it was. And after you sold it, was it not in your possession to do whatsoever you wanted to do with it? Yes, it was. No, it belonged to him, which is why he's being held accountable for how he's behaved with it. He didn't lie to men. He lied to God about his money. We're free moral agents. Others have free will, and God won't override that. Genesis 4, 1 through 8, please, please, please let Eve be a mother. Allow that woman to be a mother. She had two sons. One of them murdered the other, and the other one was banished. She lost two sons. God didn't intervene. God didn't override Cain's will. 
time and chance happens to us all. The Bible tells us that Ecclesiastes 9 11. Death has passed on to all men, Romans 5 and verse number 12, and so we're all going to die, Hebrews 9 27. Natural disaster happens, famines, earthquakes, storms. It's the God of heaven who revealed these things to us. We also learn from his revelation that God's solution for sin was not the prevention of death. That was the promised punishment, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Instead, God's solution for sin and death was the resurrection. But let's be clear about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus does not prevent death. The resurrection of Jesus does not prevent grief and pain and mourning. Well, what does it do? The resurrection of Jesus does take the sting out of death. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54, beginning the Bible says, when this perishable shall put on imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection does allow us to have hope. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, Paul writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, that you sorrow not as others who have no hope. But we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare unto you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not proceed or prevent those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are alive, we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The resurrection of the Lord gives hope, but then it also, while it doesn't remove the pain, it does provide comfort in the pain. That chapter ends with these wonderful words. Wherefore, comfort one another. Some renderings say encourage one another with these words. Let's make some application in the time we have remaining. <clears throat> what can I do to maintain my faith in love? Let me suggest three things. If you have your Bibles, look at Hebrews chapter 12 for the first one. Hebrews chapter 12, what can I do? Number one, focus on Christ. The Hebrew writer says in this great book about faith, in fact, he's been talking about faith the entire book. He's been talking all the way through here about faith. You could start over in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to, to the persevering of the soul, the saving of the soul. The just shall live by faith. We're not of those who draw back. Then that great chapter in 11 on faith, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And all of those individuals of faith, chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we have or seen we have such a greater cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us do three things. Let us say, lay aside every sin and wait. Let us run the race with endurance and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Notice how Jesus is described. He is the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. What did he do? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of God. 
He says, consider him, contemplate him, think about him. He endures such hostility as sinners against himself. Now, why should we consider Jesus? Note the end of the verse. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you do not lose your faith. Focusing on Jesus then would help you maintain your faith. Number two, learn from God. Well, what do you mean, learn from God? Well, God is trying to teach us several things about life. Among them are these. He's trying to teach us that life is temporal. You take a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 16, into chapter 5, over to about verse 10 or 11, and Paul makes it abundantly clear. The light affliction, which is but for a moment, worked for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight and glory. He tells us not to look at the things which are seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but we should see that which is unseen. That's eternal. Paul in scripture, God is trying to teach us that life is temporal. Secondly, God is trying to teach us not simply that it's temporal. Go, go back to the book of Psalms and, and notice Psalm 90. God is also then trying to teach us that life is short. We read these great passages uh, about the days of our years are, are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score, yet is there their strength, pain, and sorrow, and, and we read that, and sometimes I fear we might sort of miss a portion of what the psalmist is saying. We just say sometimes that, you know, 70 years and 80 years, that's true. And what James is describing is that, that entire window from zero to 70 and from zero to 80, James 4 is saying, it's so short, it's a vapor. He's not talking about a portion of it. He's talking about the entirety of it. James says, what is your life? Well, Psalm 90 says it's 70 or 80 years. And James says it's a vapor. What is God trying to tell us? That life is temporal. That life is short. That life is fragile. Earlier in Psalm 90, verse 4, down to verse number 6, he talks about life being a grass. It, it, it comes up today and it's gone in the night. It's gone. It's, it, it comes and it goes. It's fragile. Proverbs 27, verse number 1, a song along those same lines. What are we learning from God? God says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. What's God trying to teach us? Life is short. He's trying to teach us that. Life is fragile. He's trying to teach us that. Life might not even make it to tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised. So what's the lesson that's found in Psalm 90 and verse number 12? If you learn from God, what's the lesson? So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. How can I maintain my faith? I can learn lessons from God. The very God I am drifting away from is the very God who is telling me these things are going to happen. Number three, trust in God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. 
maybe like no other time in life when we encounter loss, is it time to trust in God? That is not the time to lean on your own understanding. Maybe like no other instance should we trust in God and not lean on our own understanding. You could also note Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. The, the Bible says the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Friends, as we draw this to an end, let me just say this. Loss is arguably the greatest challenge we'll face to our faith. And depending on the person, the cause, the age, circumstances, some loss can be even more challenging than others. There's nothing I'm saying here tonight to try to mitigate that or suggest in any way that you and I shouldn't feel that. Do you know, maybe even at a deeper level, that not only takes our loved ones, it calls our own existence into account. Maybe it's the case that it's such a problem because it makes us all question if this life is all there is. That we want, I know, no, we need to know this is not the end. Not just for our loved ones. But what happens when it's my time? I need to know this is not the end. You know, it almost appears that God, God sought to solve this issue for us repeatedly in Scripture. God has the answer for that problem. God made the world and he made it to declare every day, this is not all there is. Psalm 19, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. We should hear God in the creation every day saying, children, I'm here. This is not all there is. Now, as you read through the Bible, you understand that we gave ourselves to sin. And the sad words of Romans 1 are these. They did not retain God in their knowledge. How sad is it that we, mankind, humanity, told God, we don't want you anymore. But God didn't leave us. No, he made promises to Abraham. And we read at the end of the book of Genesis, the rise of Joseph set the stage for God to once again declare to the world, I'm here. Oh, it's found in the great Exodus. Those plagues that God gives, he shows and he says to Pharaoh, by this you will know. Not only Pharaoh, but the Egyptians will know, the Israelites will know, uh, Rahab knew, the whole world will know. It's God's way of saying, I'm here, the giving of the law. Exodus 19, 18, Jehovah descends upon the mountain in fire. Verse 20, Jehovah came down on Mount Sinai. God was saying to his people and to the world, children, I'm here. This is not all there is. But then as we work our way through the Bible, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only did God say over and over and over again, not only through creation, not only through the Exodus, God came down and took on flesh and God said through Jesus, I'm here. This is not all there is. And we killed him. We nailed him to a cross with wicked hands. We crucified him. But Jesus rose from the dead and the resurrection was his way of saying, I have risen and so will you. He promised in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. God through Jesus is saying, I'm here. And one day you can be with me. But you know, they weren't done. No, God and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus went back to heaven. The Holy Spirit came. The church was established. God said, I'm here. 
The scriptures was revealed, completed. We have all of the mystery revealed. We know the mind of God. God is saying, I'm here. This is not all there is. And so when death comes, we lose the loved one. It hurts. And it always hurts. And we cry. And we scream. And we grieve. And we mourn. And we always And nothing I've said tonight is to discourage them from pleading to God, praying to God. But God is not to be blamed. And what is being offered tonight is encouragement to maintain our faith in God up to and through loss. Now what's being said is that God has assured us, my child, your heart is broken. Your eyes are filled with tears. Your heart hurts, but I'm here. What has been said has been said out of love and concern for children of God who have suffered the pain and agony of losing a loved one. And my brother and sister, please maintain, hold on to, and even strengthen your faith in God. For if we lose our faith, after we lose our loved ones, then we lose twice. Our faith is in God. It's not predicated upon the health and long life of our loved ones. Our faith is not rooted in our health. Rather, our faith is rooted in the eternal divine God of heaven. We trust his infinite nature. We rely on his perfect character. And may we never waver from that faith. Christ rose, and so will we, and so will our loved ones. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord.